Welcome. This is Barry Baines from Baines Law, a legal miscellany where we regularly podcast about cases and legal issues, as well as talking to professionals and others who have experience of our legal system. It was always hectic at question time in the House of Lords, sometimes as many as 30 questions in a 10 minute period. Occasionally, glancing directly ahead towards the Woolsack, where the Lord Chancellor, Lord Hailsham, was presiding, I was furiously making notes of the proceedings. Then, to my alarm, there was an almighty thump on the rear of my seat, which completely shattered my concentration and sent my mind into overdrive. As I half turned, I heard a passionate interjection from the peer who had just risen from his seat on the cross benches so passionate, in fact, that he had thought nothing of bringing his fist crashing down so close to my shoulder on the chair's backrest. It was the unmistakable Hampshire Burr of Lord Denning, one of this country's greatest lawyers and judges. He was by then also one of this country's longest serving judges, popularly known as the People's Judge, because he tried to do justice in every case even if it meant shaping the law as he did so. It made him unpopular in some quarters, particularly in government and with academics who felt he meddled too much with judicial precedent. And perhaps like so many great people, he went on a little too long. He became a law lord in 1956, but moved back to the Court of Appeal in 1962 as master of the rolls a position he held for 20 years. But the national press took to reporting and criticising his every slip, and at 82 he retired from the bench. Nonetheless, he was a champion of the man on the Clapham omnibus. His judgments, written in plain English, were lucid and easy to understand, and he was, at least legally, a 20th century national treasure. He was thrust into the limelight in 1963, when Harold Macmillan, the then British Prime Minister, invited him as a senior judge to undertake an inquiry. John Profumo, the Secretary of State for War, had resigned on 4th of January 1963 after admitting that he had lied to Parliament. He was later found to have been in contempt of Parliament and completely resigned his seat. His disgrace was complete when his name was removed from the Privy Council. Tom Denning was asked to examine the circumstances leading to the resignation and report with particular reference on any danger to national security. Profumo's resignation was the culmination of an affair with a 19-year-old model called Christine Keeler, which began in 1961. In a statement to the House of Commons, he denied the affair, but a subsequent police investigation revealed the truth. It was a scandal that rocked the nation and damaged the Conservative government. In the autumn of 1963, Prime Minister Macmillan resigned his position through ill health. Central to the story is Stephen Ward, a society osteopath with consulting rooms in Devonshire Street, Mayfair. His high society clients 
included those from politics and the world of show business. Approaching 50 years of age, Ward was quick-witted and sociable, as well as being an accomplished portrait artist. He loved beautiful young women, frequented nightclubs, and made a point of picking up teenage girls and taking them back to his house in Wimpole Street. He introduced them to his society friends. One of his friends was Captain Eugene Ivanov, a Russian naval attaché at the Russian Embassy in London. He too was keen on the ladies. Ivanov was a frequent visitor to pool parties at Ward's rented cottage at Cliveden. Christine Keeler was a showgirl working at a cabaret club. She hadn't been there long before Stephen Ward was attracted to her. He took her to the Cliveden weekends and introduced her to men of rank and position. It was there that she met John Profumo in 1961, and their affair commenced. By the time Profumo resigned, the press was having a field day, and stories of wild sex parties abounded around the involvement of government figures and other prominent people. Within days of the resignation, Stephen Ward was arrested and charged with procuring young women and living off immoral earnings. The prosecution case wasn't exactly overwhelming, and some thought it was an attempt by government to distract attention from the real truth, a concept not entirely unheard of even to this day. Ward eventually stood trial at the Old Bailey before Mr Justice Marshall and a jury. He was prosecuted by Mervyn Griffiths-Jones, the very same counsel who prosecuted over the publication of Lady Chatterley's Lover. Not known as a man of the world, Griffiths-Jones referred to Stephen Ward as representing the very depths of lechery and depravity. Mr Justice Marshall summed up strongly for the prosecution and adjourned overnight before sending the jury out the following day. During that night, Stephen Ward wrote letters to friends and others before taking an overdose of barbiturate sleeping tablets. He was taken to hospital. The judge completed his summing up in the defendant's absence. The jury returned and convicted Ward of living off the immoral earnings of Christine Keeler and Mandy Rice Davis although he was found not guilty on some other charges. Sentence was postponed until Ward was fit to appear. But a few days later, his part in this tragic affair came to an abrupt conclusion when he died. Moving back in time to the Cliveden weekends, it was there that Captain Ivanov told Stephen Ward that the Russians knew as a fact that the American government had taken a decision to arm Western Germany with atomic weapons, and he asked Ward to find out through his influential friends when the decision was to be implemented. Ivanov implied that if he did so, he would facilitate a trip by Ward to Moscow, where Ward wished to arrange portrait sittings with President Khrushchev. The security service came to learn of the friendship and at some stage spoke to Ward about it. Whilst Ward had use of a cottage at Cliveden, the great house 
was owned by Lord and Lady Astor, and on a summer's weekend in 1961, they visited with a large party of distinguished visitors, which included Mr. and Mrs. John Profumer, who stayed there for the weekend. Ward organized a pool party. Afterwards, Ivanov left the house and took Christine Keeler back to town, and there was some sexual engagement. During the weekend, Profumo became very attracted to Christine Keeler, and over the course of the next few weeks, he arranged to meet her for sex. The question that subsequently arose, of course, was whether there was a security breach, and if Profumo was innocently used to provide information to the Russians. After August 1961, Stephen Ward saw little or nothing of Profumo, but he continued his friendship with Captain Ivanov, who continually asked him questions about the general political intention of the British. It was clear that Stephen Ward did his best to get all the information he could for Ivanov. He sought help from influential friends, particularly Lord Astor. Lord Astor wrote to the Foreign Office, told them he had a friend called Stephen Ward, who had become a friend of Captain Ivanov, and suggested that if the Foreign Office wished to ensure that at any particular moment the Russian embassy was absolutely correctly informed as to Western intentions, Stephen Ward would be useful. Lord Astor was told quite clearly that the Foreign Office would not wish to use Ward's services. It did not end there. The services of another member of Parliament were enlisted, and ultimately Ward went to see the permanent Undersecretary of State at the Foreign Office. But the Foreign Office seemed to have no illusions about Stephen Ward, and his offer was declined. At the end of 1962, Lord and Lady Ednam held a dinner party where a senior Foreign Office official and his wife were invited. There too were Stephen Ward and Captain Ivanov. There was talk by them of the possibility of Germany acquiring nuclear weapons, but the man from the Foreign Office disclosed nothing. Lord Denning's view was that Ward was without doubt a communist sympathiser, and so very much under the influence of Captain Ivanov that he was a potential danger. But all this was known to the security service, who kept appropriate people informed. Christine Keeler came to learn that there were two newspapers who would buy her story. One was the News of the World, and the other was the Sunday Pictorial. When the Sunday Pictorial offered her £1,000, she went to the News of the World, who refused to become involved in a Dutch auction. So she signed a contract with Sunday Pictorial to sell them her story for £1,000, £200 to be paid now, and £800 on completion. She sold the story of her double life with rich men in high places, as well as the seedier side of it. She told them about her relations with Profumo and Captain Ivanov, and she produced a letter from Profumo to corroborate her story. She told the newspaper that Stephen Ward had asked her to obtain information from Profumo about Germany and nuclear weapons. In January 1963, it appears that Captain Ivanhoff was tipped off and he left England by the end of the month, much earlier than expected. When Stephen Ward found out about the interview with the Sunday pictorial, he did all he could to stop it. 
solicitors were involved. Lord Astor was involved, and he went to see John Profumo to tell him of the danger. Ministers were concerned at a very early stage. Profumo saw the Attorney General and the Chief Whip. The Attorney General began by telling Profumo that he must be absolutely frank with him, and unless he told the truth, he couldn't help. Profumo told the Attorney General that he had first met Christine Keeler at Cliveden with his wife and many other people were present. Although there were subsequent meetings between them, there was no sexual impropriety of any kind. Profumo recollected that he had written Christine Keeler a short note that began with the word darling, telling her that he could not come to a cocktail party. He said this was the total limit of his acquaintance with her. The Attorney General questioned Profumo about everything he was told and emphasised that if there were any truth in these rumours, he would have to resign. Profumo proclaimed his innocence and said he commonly used the word darling, and being married to an actress, he had become used to using the term, which was quite meaningless. The Attorney General remained suspicious. He thought it a rather odd story. A few days later, he revisited Profumo in the company of the Solicitor General. The Solicitor General asked Profumo if the story were printed, would he be prepared to issue a writ for libel or slander? He said he would, even if it were against a friend or colleague. Profumo saw the chief whip and went through the same detail. The chief whip said, well, look, nobody would believe that you didn't sleep with her. Profumo replied disarmingly, yes, I know they wouldn't believe it, but it happens to be true that I didn't sleep with her. Meanwhile, Christine Keeler was due to give evidence in an unrelated attempted murder trial at the Old Bailey, but she disappeared. Her photograph appeared in a newspaper with the words, this is Christine Keeler, the 21-year-old model who was found to be missing yesterday when the Old Bailey trial of a man accused of attempting to murder her began. The newspapers were also running stories that Profuma had offered to resign, although there was no truth in them. They also placed these two stories alongside each other with a picture of Christine Keeler and the front page of the Daily Express aroused alarm. The chief whip felt it was all getting out of hand. Members of Parliament were asking whether Profumo had arranged for Christine Keeler's disappearance. The chief whip decided that the right way to bring the rumours to an end was for Profumo to make a personal statement to the House. On Friday, the 22nd of March, 1963, he made the statement. I last saw Miss Keeler in December 1961, and I have not seen her since. I have no idea where she is now. Any suggestion that I was in any way connected with or responsible for her absence from the trial at the Old Bailey is wholly and completely untrue. He ended, there was no impropriety whatsoever in my acquaintanceship with Miss Keeler. I shall not hesitate to issue writs for libel and slander if scandalous allegations are made or repeated outside the house. On 30th of March, Paris Match published an article saying, Christine disparaît mystérieusement, Parfumo a aidé Christine s'enfuir. 
Profumo brought an action for libel in the French courts and Paris Match issued a retraction. But matters deteriorated. Harold Wilson raised security issues and there was a burst of speculation in Fleet Street. At the end of May, the chief whip and the prime minister's private secretary separately saw Profumo. He was told it looked as if there would be an inquiry and if there was any flaw in his story, it would damage the government enormously. Again, he stood by his story. On Friday the 31st of May, Parliament adjourned for the recess. Mr and Mrs Profumo left for holiday in Venice. They were inundated by the press at the airport. But Profumo had determined to tell his wife the truth. They sat up all night. On 4th of June, he saw the chief whip and the Prime Minister's private secretary and said at once, I have to tell you that I did sleep with Miss Keeler and my statement in that respect was untrue. There ended this pitiful affair. Lord Denning found that the primary responsibility must rest with Profumo. First, by associating with Christine Keeler as he did. Secondly, and worse, by telling lies about it to colleagues and deceiving them. Third, and gravest, by the falsity of his solemn statement to the House of Commons. None of the governmental services was to blame except Profumo. There was no breach of national security. At the conclusion of his report, Lord Denning wrote this. Scandalous information about well-known people has become a marketable commodity. True or false, actual or invented, it can be sold. The greater the scandal, the higher the price it commands. If supported by photographs or letters, real or imaginary, all the better. The story improves with the telling. The story is offered to the newspapers who deal in this commodity. They vie with one another to buy it. Each is afraid the other will get it first. So they buy it on chance that it will turn out profitable. 60 years on, and what have we learned? One is tempted to say not much. Those remarks are as true now as they were in 1963. Thank you for listening to Bain's Law. Listen out for future podcasts where we will continue to discuss issues of interest to the legal community. If there is a professional perspective that you would like to share, get in touch via our website at www.barrybaines.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Bain's Law. We look forward to presenting to you again very soon on Bain's Law.